Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 7. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we're going through a series called Journey with Jesus. And it's a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. We're on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're studying the life of Christ. And uh, we are uh, spending an entire year uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ and looking at His life. And I don't know who would be better to learn from and learn of in church than, of course, our Savior. And uh, we are on this journey with Christ. And this morning we find ourselves with Him in this city called Nain. There's this story in these uh, few verses here uh, of a resurrection. This story is only found in the Gospel of Luke. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. And just by way of introduction, I'm going to give you an outline. I'll give you three points and I encourage you to write those down as we go through it. But before we jump into that, just by way of introduction, let me show you a couple of things from this passage here. And you can jot these down if you'd like as well. I'd like you to notice, first of all, that there are two groups that meet in this story. Notice there in verse 11, the Bible says, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. And of course, if you remember, we have Jesus traveling in his ministry We just saw him last week healed the centurion's uh, servant, and now he's got this group. The Bible tells us many disciples went with him and much people. And of course, we would imagine that this is a group that is rejoicing. This is a group that has seen Jesus perform miracles. He just got done preaching that sermon on the plain. And this is a group that is gathered, and they are following Christ, and they are happy. They are rejoicing. They are fulfilled. But I want you to notice that there's another group. In verse 12, the Bible tells us, Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. Here we have what you would refer to as a funeral funeral, uh, procession. We have this dead man being carried out to be uh, buried, And the Bible tells us that behind him is his mother and much people of the city with her. So in the story, you've got these two groups that are uh, are, uh, traveling, and they are about to converge. They are about to meet, and these two large groups are going to become really kind of a mega group. And it's interesting to me because these two groups, in my opinion, represent uh, the two groups that... Uh, converge upon this world today. There is a group of people that are saved believers, and they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a group of those that are not following Christ. And you say, who are they following? Well, it doesn't really matter who they're following, because whoever they're following is dead. The Bible says, let the dead bury the dead. The Bible talks about the blind following the blind. And here you have this group of mourners as they follow a dead man, and you've got a group of disciples as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two groups really represent the two groups in our world today. In this world today, there are two groups, those that are spiritually alive and those that are spiritually dead. And uh, we see these two groups converging and coming together. But I want you to notice, not only is there two groups, but there's also two sons. Notice verse 12. Again, now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. Notice, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Here we have a widow who is burying her only son. He is dead. We have a son 
who is dead, and as we've read already in the story, this son who is dead is going to be resurrected. The Lord Jesus Christ will resurrect him. Now this son that is dead, he's the only son of his mother, meets another son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the father. And it's interesting to me that in this story we have two sons, one that is dead but is destined to live, and one that is alive but he's destined to die. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, we know, will make his way to the cross, and he will die. So here we see these two groups, and we see uh, these uh, two sons. But I want you to notice just, and again, by way of induction, uh, also two resurrections. Notice there in verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to this uh, widow woman. And the Bible tells us, that he had compassion on her. And just again, by way of introduction, I want to highlight that this is often an emotion that is highlighted in the Word of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible often tells us that the Lord Jesus had compassion on someone or on a multitude of people. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. But in Matthew 10, 36, the Bible famously says, but when he saw the multitudes, referring to Jesus, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And the Bible often tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion or that he had compassion. Here we're told that the Lord saw this widow woman and he had compassion on her. And, it, and it's an interesting idea uh, that Jesus had compassion on her. And you, and, and you might wonder why this widow and why this situation. And, and I want you to just understand something. And like I said, we're going to get into the text here in a minute. But just, just to give you context, this, this woman, the Bible tells us, is a widow. And the Bible tells us that Jesus takes special interest in her. He has compassion on her. And I want you to understand the widow's dilemma because obviously any time that a family member dies or a loved one dies, that is a difficult time for anyone. And it's a difficult time for everyone. But this lady had an even more difficult time because of the fact that the Bible tells us there in verse 12 that she was a widow. What that means is that her husband, whose job it is to protect her, to provide for her, who has been given the position of leadership in her life. Her husband has passed. She's a widow, meaning that she is now left behind, and her husband is no longer there to provide and protect for her. Well, in the ancient world and in the Bible times, there was no such thing as welfare or social security, and the responsibility of taking care for widows fell upon the children, and specifically the sons of that widow. So when this lady's husband died, the responsibility of someone taking care of her, seeking her welfare, providing for, protecting her, uh, 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 making sure that she's taken care of, fell on her son, her only son, but now her only son is now dead. So this lady is really alone. And in the ancient world, not only has she lost her husband, not only has she lost her son, but she has lost her sustenance. She has lost her protection and her provider. And she's in a, a position now where she will not have someone to care for her. And she may have to uh, uh, beg and she may have to uh, live on the streets or not be uh, uh, cared for. So we see here that the Bible tells us that when the Lord saw, notice there in verse 13, he saw her. He saw her. 
He saw this individual lady. And of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. We're about to see that here in a minute when he resurrects her son. But he not only saw her, he knew her. He knew the details of her life. He knew her financial position. He knew uh, uh, everything about her. He knew the grief that she had had when she lost her husband, the grief that she now had when she lost her only son. And the Bible here tells us that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And I'm here to tell you something. It wasn't just her. The Lord knows you. The Lord knows me. The Lord knows all the details of your life and my life. None of it is... Uh, news to him. None of it is a surprise to him. And he had, the Bible tells us, compassion on her and said unto her, notice these words, he says, weep not. Amen. So we see the Lord Jesus here. You say, why does he, why would you tell a mother at the funeral of her only son not to weep? Well, he tells her that because he's about to resurrect this boy. Notice in verse 13, and when he saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Verse 14, and he came and touched the beer. That word beer is a reference to a frame or a stand on which a corpse or a coffin is laid before a, bur- a burial. It is the, uh, the, the frame on which you would lay a corpse, and the way that we would think of it is kind of like an open casket. It is a frame in which you put a body, it is open, and you carry that body uh, to the funeral, to the location for, uh, where it's going to be. Uh, buried. In the ancient world, the, the burials would have to happen. When somebody died, you'd have to bury that body because there was lack of uh, ability to preserve the body. They'd have to be uh, buried fairly quickly. And here we have this procession, this funeral procession. Jesus sees this woman. He takes compassion on her. He tells her, weep not. In verse 14, he came and touched the bier, and they that bear, and they that bear him stood still and he said, this is Jesus speaking to this corpse of this young man. He said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Notice these words. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came fear and all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us, and, and that God hath visited his people and this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. So I want you to notice not only are there two groups and not only are there two sons in the story, but I also want you to understand that there are two resurrections. And what I mean by that is this, that throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that there are sometimes these miracles performed where someone that was dead is resurrected from the grave. But I want you to understand that those resurrections are different than the coming resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming resurrection of all believers and what we refer to as the rapture. And you say, why is it different? And here's why. Because this resurrection might be considered more of a resuscitation. This resurrection was a young man that was dead, and yes, he was very dead, but he was resurrected in that same body in which he died, and he was resurrected, and and here's the point, to one day die again. Everyone in the Bible that was resurrected eventually died again uh, at a different time. But the Bible tells us about Jesus at his resurrection, when he resurrects from the grave, and when he resurrected from the grave, he resurrected in a glorified body, never to die again. In Romans 6, 9, and again, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. The Bible says, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more death, 
hath no more dominion over him. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that when you and I are resurrected at the rapture, the Bible says, uh, you know, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? See, there is coming a resurrection in a glorified body in which when we are resurrected, we will be resurrected to never die again. But this is not the case here. This young man died again later on in life. And uh, Jesus, the Bible tells us that there are three different accounts in his ministry in which he resurrected uh, somebody. One is here. We see in Luke uh, chapter 7 when he resurrected this young man, this young dead man from Nain. Another account of the resurrection is when Jesus went and resurrected Jairus' daughter. If you remember the story, Jairus was a ruler of the Jews. He calls Jesus uh, to heal his daughter, but by the time Jesus gets there, she's already dead. Jesus walks into what we would call a funeral-type situation where people are weeping and mourning, and he resurrects her from the dead. Jesus also famously resurrected a very close friend of his by the name of Lazarus. And if you remember that story, Jesus again shows up at the funeral and resurrects Lazarus. It's interesting to me, whenever you see Jesus at a, at a funeral, he ends up resurrecting the dead person. You don't ever see Jesus, the, the three times you see Jesus at a funeral, he resurrects the dead person. And it seems to me like death can't stand in the presence of Christ. Amen. He is alive, the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And uh, here we have this story where Jesus happens to come upon a funeral, funeral procession. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he resurrected her son. So we have these two groups that converge together and we have these two sons. One that is dead and destined to live and one that is alive. And we know that he will die and resurrect for our sins. And we have these two resurrections. It's a picture of Revival, it's a picture of a resurrection, but this young man will die. Jairus' daughter died again. Lazarus died again. But one day, we will all, all believers will be resurrected, never to die again. So just some thoughts here in regards to uh, this story, just by way of introduction. And uh, it is an interesting story, only found here in the Gospel of Luke. But let's jump into the story. Let me give you three thoughts in regards to this and... I, like I said, I would encourage you to take some notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some things. Whenever you see a resurrection in the Bible, obviously it's a literal physical event that actually happened, but there are some spiritual applications that can be made. And one that I like to always think about when I read these stories is that they represent revival. Because what you have is someone who is dead, and they are given life again. They are brought back to life. They are revived. And in Christianity, we often talk about revival in the idea of God's people being revived and being uh, used of God. And in the story, we can find a picture or an illustration of revival. I'd like to just point these out to you, and maybe you can jot these down. Number one, I'd like you to notice the candidate for revival. It's interesting to me because Christians often talk about revival. We talk about revival. We pray for revival. People are often talking about, uh, you know, the revival of the nation and all these things. But I want you to understand that the candidate for revival is a corpse because in order for there to be revival... First, someone has to be dead. 
And the candidate for revival is, in this story is this young man that is dead. Notice there again, verse number 12, Luke chapter 7, verse 12. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. In order for there to be revival, first, someone has to be dead. The candidate for revival is this young man who is dead. Now, I want you to understand something. Keep your place there in Luke chapter 7. That's our text for this morning. And go, maybe you would, to the uh, last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter 3. Do me a favor. When you get to the book of Revelation, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Revelation chapter number 3. And I'd like you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to understand this, that Christians can grow cold and die spiritually. I did not say that you can lose your salvation. The Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But the Christian life, the, the life of a Christian can grow cold and die spiritually. And I don't want to get into the subjects of James chapter 2 because it's, it's a subject that you could spend a whole sermon on, but there's a reason why the Bible says that faith without works is dead. And people will often try to use that to say that uh, if you don't have works then you're not saved, but that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say faith without works is non-existent. It says faith without works is dead. What does that mean? That means that you're, you can have faith and have it be dead. A Christian's Spiritual life can grow cold and they can die spiritually. They can begin to grow cold and they can die. You say, why are you bringing this up? Here's why. Because the candidate for revival is a dead Christian. A Christian can grow cold and die spiritually. You're there in Revelation 3. Look at verse 14. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. Here, of course, we have the famous uh, uh, letters being written to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. It's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to these churches. In verse 14, the Bible says, And unto the angel, this is Jesus speaking, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice verse 15. He says, I know thy works. Now notice what he, how he describes these Christians. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, he said, he said, I know the type of Christian that you are, that you're not cold or hot. He said, notice what he says. He says, I would thou were cold or hot. He says, so then, because thou art lukewarm. What does it mean to be lukewarm? Lukewarm is defined as being moderately warm, having or showing little uh, ardor, zeal, or enthusiasm. It's defined as being indifferent. And I'm here to tell you, many Christians can be defined by the term lukewarm. Unfortunately, there's many a Christian that does not have much zeal. They do not have much enthusiasm. They are indifferent. They are apathetic. They're just, they're not hot or cold. They're just lukewarm. And Jesus says, so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. See, I want you to understand something, that Christians can grow cold and die spiritually. And unfortunately, and I don't mean to offend you when I say this, but the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit offends you, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, in a church like ours, and in a church, even a church of this size, there are many of you that are lukewarm, that are neither cold nor hot, that are just kind of indifferent. There's no zeal. There's no 
There's no enthusiasm. There's nothing burning inside of you that's excited for the things of God. And you say, why is that? Why can that be? Here's why. Because Christians can grow cold and die spiritually. I didn't say they lose their salvation. But they can die. Over the last 11 years of ministry, one of the hardest lessons that my wife and I have had to learn is that one of the hardest things to do in ministry is watch people slowly get backslidden and die. Watch a Christian that was once on fire for the Lord, once excited for God, once faithful to the things of God, devoted to the things of God, to just watch them get distracted, to watch them get disgruntled, to watch them get, 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 uh, get uh, disheartened with the things of God or for the things of God, and you just watch them uh, get, get cold. For the Lord, it's difficult. They're alive, but they're dead. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. The Bible here talks about a widow who was once living for the Lord and now living for herself. It says that she liveth, it says, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And that can describe many Christians who are living for their own pleasure, living for their own uh, 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 glory, living for their own amusement. And yeah, they, while they liveth in pleasure, they are dead while they're living. They're not really living for God. They're not doing anything for God. And I'm just here to tell you something. Christians, unfortunately, can grow cold and die spiritually. One thing I have said over the years, and I heard a pastor say this, I knew a pastor who said this, and then I read this somewhere, and I thought it was interesting. Somebody, they did a study of Christians over, uh, over years and over decades. They found that the average Christian that begins to be faithful to church and to the things of God and to the house of God, the average Christian does not make it past three years. So if you start, you know, decide, I'm going to start going to church, and I'm going to start acting, actively being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Christ, and living the Christian life, that, for the average person, will not last past three years. And the interesting thing is that when I heard that and when I uh, became aware of that, I began to kind of do an anecdotal uh, uh, study of our own church over the last 11 years and began to, to look at individuals. I'm not talking about people that showed up every once in a while. I'm talking about people that were part of this church, faithful to this ministry, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winners, tithing, all of it. And I began to see a pattern that it really was true, that it, it's kind of like, you, you kind of make it to three years, and a lot of people fade out after three years. The study found that if you are able to make it after three years, then you'll likely make it after up to seven years. But uh, for some reason, the three-year mark is a time when people kind of begin to get this itch, and they begin to grow cold and get backslidden. If they can make it past the three-year mark, then the next itch, the next uh, uh, time that you get to, you know, this, this, this time where you might get backslidden is the seven-year mark. The study found that if you can make it past seven years, that you'll probably stick with the Christian life and, and following the Lord for the rest of your life. You know, so it, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, and people over the years have, have brought this up to me just recently. Uh, Brother Joe and Miss Christine Laqueta well, uh, came up to me a couple weeks ago and said, Pastor, we made it to our three-year anniversary. And I'm like, praise the Lord, you know. Uh, now they're, they're still, you know, they're, they're still, uh, we're going to keep an eye on them until the seven years. But uh, they're still on probation period, but uh, no, praise God for it. What I'm, what I'm saying is this, Christians have a tendency to get distracted, to get led away. They have a tendency to forget the most important thing. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Christians can grow cold, die spiritually. They can begin to die. But it's not only Christians. You're there in Revelation 3. Like you look at verse 1. Because churches are made up of Christians. So not only can Christians grow cold and die, but also churches can grow cold and die. Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 1. Notice what Jesus says to another church. He says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast, notice what he says to this church, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Here's a church that has a reputation that they are alive and they are dead. By God's grace and by, by, by the help of God, we get emails every week around here from people all over this country and all over the world that have been uh, ministered to by our ministry. And even this week, uh, somebody sent an email and I uh, looked over it and, it and it said something along the lines of, your church has made an impact throughout the entire world and um, thank you for blessing us and thank you for helping us and, and saying all these nice things. And, 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 and I'm thankful for it, but I w- was working on this sermon and I thought to myself, I hope that Verity Baptist Church never comes to the place where it has a name that thou livest but art dead. This church was a church that at one point was doing something. They were accomplishing something. They had a reputation for being a church that was alive, a church that was excited, a church that was accomplishing great things for God. But God looks down at this church and Sardis and Jesus says, thou hast a name that thou livest. And he says, but I know the truth and art dead. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Here, Jesus is looking at this church and saying, You have a name that thou livest and art dead. He says, You need to be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Notice what he says. He says, That are ready to die. Notice what he says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. If you just flip back one chapter, Revelation chapter 2. See, do you understand that churches can die? We have many first-generation Christians in our church, and I'm thankful for that. I praise God for the fact that our church is a church that is alive and reaching new converts and people for the gospel, and praise God for it. I realize not all of you are first-generation Christians, and I'm thankful for those of you that are not first-generation Christians as well. I'm not a first-generation Christian. My parents were Christians, and my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. I'm a third-generation Christian, and I think there's a place in the work of God for for all of us. But one thing that I want the first-generation Christians to know, and especially those of you that have only ever known Verity Baptist Church or a church like this, is that not every church is like this. Not every church is alive and enthusiastic. Not every church has 70 to 80 kids running around in our homeschool group. Not every church has 100 soul winners showing up on a Saturday morning to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out into the community. Not every church is like this. There's many a good church, many a Baptist church, many a soul winning King James Baptist church, meeting today, meeting this morning, where there's a handful of elderly people meeting together. I mean, there's churches in this city. I've knocked on doors in this city where I've talked to people and I said, man, I, and people have said to me and given me a testimony of Baptist churches in this city where they said, we used to, you know, I, I remember knocking on doors to this elderly couple and they were saved and they went to a Baptist church and they started asking questions about our church and I began to tell them about our church and, 
And they were asking about our service. I said, we have Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service. They said, our church used to have Wednesday night Bible study. They said, man, there was a time, and they were talking about back in the 70s. They said, when our Wednesday night service was standing room only. There were like hundreds of people showed up to church on the, at the midweek service. And, but today, that church, four or five elderly people meet together on a Sunday morning. And I'm just here to tell you, churches can die. They have a name that thou livest and are dead. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This is Jesus speaking unto the church of Ephesus. And I want you to notice what he says to this church in verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee. Notice, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore, he says, from whence, the word whence means from what place thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will, notice what he says, will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. You say, what does that mean when Jesus says to this church at Ephesus that he might remove the candlestick out of his place? Well, go to Revelation chapter 1. Remember that the Bible always defines itself. The Bible is its own dictionary. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, the Bible says, Jesus says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You say, what is the candlestick a picture of? What does it represent? It represents a church. What does Jesus say to the church at Ephesus? He says, because thou hast left thy first love. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. And he says, if you don't, I will remove thy candlestick out of his place. What does that mean? Jesus is telling him, I'm going to take, take the candlestick away. You might still have a building, and you might still gather together, and people might still call you a church. But he says, you won't be a church anymore. My pastor growing up would reference this passage. He said, he, he would call it, you'll, you'll lose the franchise. And he talked about a story in a town where he was growing up where there was this KFC. And this KFC was this little town, and the owner of this KFC decided that they were going to add some things to the menu. So they had the KFC menu, but then they had all these little local dishes that they served, and they were just all these random things that you could go to this KFC and get tamales and all sorts of odd things. And KFC got a whiff of it, and, and one day, you know, they showed up, and, and they had this big old, uh, uh, you know, bucket of, of KFC, you know, thing on the roof with the picture of, of Colonel Sanders. And by the way, this sermon is being uh, brought to you by KFC. And... Uh, <laughs> They're paying me to tell this story now. <laughs> and, and, and one day, a crane was out there, and the colonel was coming down. And, and, and people were asking, what's going on? And, and the owner had to tell people, we've lost the franchise. Because we started doing things that don't make us KFC. Let me tell you something. There's many churches across this country that have lost the franchise. They might call themselves church, and they might be gathering with an assembly, and they might have a group there. They might even have a big group there. They, they might, look, just because you call yourself a church, you might actually be a rock concert. You might actually just be a social gathering. Jesus says there are certain things that make you a church, and if you do not repent and remember from whence thou art fallen, he says, I'm going to remove the candlestick. So I'm just here to tell you, that Christians can grow cold and die spiritually. In fact, some of you are growing cold and dying spiritually as we speak. 
And churches can grow cold and die spiritually. And by the grace of God, with God's help, we'll never let that happen. Not around here, not while I'm the pastor. You say, why bring this up? Here's why I bring it up, to give you hope that you don't have to die. You can be revived. In fact, the candidate, maybe you're here where you say, my spiritual life is dead. It's cold. It's grown stale. I'm just not excited anymore. Well, then you're the perfect candidate for revival. Because the candidate for revival is a dead man. The candidate for revival is a dead church. The candidate for revival is one that is dead. See, this young man was dead. Go, go, keep, your, keep, keep your finger right there in Revelation. We're going to come back to it. And go back to Luke chapter 7, if you would. We see the candidate for revival. This young man's dead. By the way, this young man's dead, and his mother, with a broken heart, is falling after him, weeping and crying. And again, we understand that, that was a physical, literal story. But let me just speak to you young people for a second. When you go ahead and decide that you're going to allow yourself to get backslidden, you're going to allow yourself to get influenced by the world, you're going to allow yourself to be taken out of church, there, there's many a mother with a broken heart because of their spiritually dead child. Realize that you do not live on an island and your sins affect others. So we see this candidate for revival. But I want you to notice, secondly, this morning in the story, not only do we see a candidate for revival, but we see the catalyst of revival. You say, what do you mean by that? The word catalyst is a reference to a thing that precipitates an event, something that causes something else to happen. See, this young man was the candidate for revival, but he did not bring revival to himself. There was a catalyst. There was something that precipitated. There was something that caused his revival to happen. You say, what was it? Notice there in Luke chapter 7 and verse 12. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. That's our candidate. Here's our catalyst. Verse, uh, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Look at verse 14. And he came and touched the bier. And they that bear him stood still. Let me remind you that in the Old Testament law, touching a dead person was a no-no. It would, it would make you unclean. But Jesus came and he touched the bier, and they that bear him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. You say, what was the catalyst? What was the thing that precipitated? What was the thing that caused revival to happen in the heart of, of, of this actually dead young man? But it's the same as the catalyst for, look, whenever you see a Christian that is just on fire for God, they're in love with the Lord, and they're loving God, and they're serving God, and they're excited, and they're not bitter, they're not angry, they're not discouraged. Life's not always easy, but their faith is in God. You say, well, how does that happen? It happens because of two things. First, Jesus touched them, and then Jesus spoke to him. He came and touched the beer, and he said, young man, notice the emphasis. He said, young man, I say, Unto thee arise. You say, what brings revival? Here's what brings revival. Fellowship with Christ and the word of God. I mean, notice what Jesus said. Go back to our dead and dying churches and Christians in Revelation chapter 3. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. 
In Revelation chapter 3, we have the lukewarm Christians. Remember them? I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would not work cold nor hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You say, what's the antidote? What's the answer to the question of their lukewarmness? Notice the answer to the question, Revelation 3 and verse 20. Notice what Jesus says. Behold, this is Jesus speaking to Christians, and he's specifically speaking to a church of dead Christians, spiritually cold and dead people. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Don't, don't, don't miss that. Je- Jesus is looking at a church And he's saying, I'm on the outside looking in. You know that Jesus and the presence of Jesus is not at every church? He said, I set his door and knock. He says, if any man hear my voice and open the door, he says, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. You said, what is the catalyst for revival? It's this fellowship with Christ through his word. He said, won't you let me in? I sat at the door and knocked. If any man hear my voice, I will come into him and will sup with him and eat with me. I will fellowship with him and I will spend time with him and I will, uh, and I will be with him. And look, I'm here to tell you something. Keep, keep your place there in, in Revelation. Go back to Luke. But do me a favor. Go to Luke 24 if you would. Luke chapter 24. You need to understand something. When Christians, you say, when Christians die, when you watch over the last 11 years, we've watched Christians die. We've watched people that were right with God, that were excited for God, that were interested in things of God, and they've gone colder and colder and more and more backslidden, and eventually they're no longer here and they're no longer serving God. They're no longer doing anything for God. You say, what do you do? To be honest with you, obviously you pray for people, you spend time with people, you try to connect with them and you follow up with them. But here's what I've learned. Is that the hope for their Christian life cannot be found in their relationship with me. I can call them every week and text them every week. I can go by their house every week. But Christianity is not a relationship with a pastor. It's not a relationship with anybody else. It is. You say, how do you keep a relationship for God hot? Hey, you keep it when you have a close walk with Jesus. See, the truth is this. You can be in a church with a pastor and a pastor's wife that cares about you. With 200 believers here and team captains and all sorts of spiritual leaders that can pray for you and call you and and, and be with you. We can get as close to you as possible. But if you're not close to Jesus, there's really not much we can do. And on the flip side, you can get arrested, be in prison, isolated from everyone and anything and have a close relationship with Jesus and still be on fire for God. See, you know what the problem is of the Christian that dies? And the problem of the churches that die is that they no longer have fellowship with Jesus. Let me give you an example, Luke 24. Luke 24. Look at verse 5. I love, this, I love this story. This is the story of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has died. He's now resurrected, but his disciples don't know that he's been resurrected. These specific disciples don't know that. In Luke 24 and verse number, uh, excuse me, verse number 13, we'll just skip some of this for sake of time. The Bible says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlong. 
And they talked together all these things which had happened, talking about the fact that Jesus had been arrested and crucified and died. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near. Because remember, Jesus is now resurrected, but they don't know it yet. They're walking down the road talking about all the things that happened, how Jesus was arrested and he was killed. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Jesus comes along and they don't know it's Jesus. And he said unto them, what manner of communication? He says, what manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? They they say, Why are you asking us why we're sad? Don't you know what's happened? Don't you know what has happened in the last three days? I, I think Jesus has to have a sense of humor. Because they're referring to the fact that Jesus has died. Jesus walks up to him and says, What are you so sad about? They're like, Don't you know what happened? Verse 19, And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and words before God and all the people, and all the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. Notice there in verse 21. But we trusted that, he, that it had been he which should be, have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since the things, since the things were done. Notice, we'll skip some of this for sake, but... Notice his response in verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now look at verse 32. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? See, the truth of the matter is is there's two types of Christians in this world. Those who read the Bible and those who don't. Those who submit themselves under the preaching of the word of God and those who don't. And I'm here to tell you something. I'll do everything in my power to try to help you spiritually, but the only thing that can help you spiritually is to stay close to God and to stay close to this book. And I just know that if you develop a habit, a daily habit of getting up every morning and opening up the Word of God and spending time with the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't have to worry about you getting backslidden, getting cold and dead. If you just walked with God. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? And you know, the sad thing for me is this, that there are many saved people who have never even felt that, not even one time. They've never experienced the Holy Spirit of God and revival in their heart and their mind and the excitement of loving God and working for God. And they've just been apathetic. Distracted by the world and distracted by the things of God, blinded by the devil and the media. Never got close to Jesus. And you wonder why you don't last more than three years. See, the catalyst for revival is getting close to Jesus. Jesus touched the beer and said, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he arose. It's fellowship with Christ. It's getting close to Christ. You're spending time with Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? 
by spending time with his word. I've taught over the years, you, you, you need to have a time of daily Bible reading where you get into the word of God. So how do I do it? Look, three steps. You need to set up an appointment with Jesus every day. You need to have an appointed time where you say, at this time every day, I open up the Word of God and I spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ. You need an appointed time. You need a place. You need a location. You need to decide where you're going to do it. You need to decide when you're going to do it. You need a plan. You need to get a Bible. You need a Bible reading chart. We've got Bible reading charts all over the place around here. We can give you one. You can print one for free on the Internet. I'm just telling you, you need to start getting in the Word of God. Or you will not last. Because I don't care how dynamic my preaching is or how funny I try to be or how entertaining I try to be. It'll only take you so long. It'll only take you so far. And at some point, a love for God has to kick in. And I can't do that for you. And your mama can't do it for you, young person. And your daddy can't do it for you. And your husband can't do it for you. And your wife can't do it for you. You're just going to have to grow up and get to know Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus and get close to Jesus. And you might find when you get close to Jesus, you don't want to stay home to watch the Grammys. You'd rather be in the house of God with the people of God. You might find when you get close to Jesus, there's just a little burning in your heart. It begins to burn for God. See, I don't know about you, but I didn't get in this thing to last three years or seven years. I want to be in this thing for the rest of my life. I want to get to the end of my life, and I want to get to the end, like it says about the Apostle Paul. He says, I finish my course with joy. Christian life is not measured in weeks. It's not measured in months. It's not measured in years. It's measured in decades. Don't tell me how many years you've been serving God. You tell me how many decades you've been serving God, and then we'll be impressed. Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Philippians 3, if you're there in Luke, you've got John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. See, you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that many Christians know Christians, and they know churches, and they know about the Bible, and they know about Jesus, but they don't have a walk, a daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how did Paul, how did Paul st- stick in this thing? How was he on fire for years and years and years? Philippians 3, look at verse 10. Notice what he says. He says, that I may know him. So you know what happens in Christianity? People get slow, they slow down. They get backslidden. They get, un- 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 they're not compassionate, apathetic. And we can try to create some sort of, you know, revival. We can try to orchestrate something. I mean, like, can I be honest with you? You'll get slow, you'll slow down. July comes around, Red Hot Preaching Conference. Nine of the greatest preachers in this world come to this place, preach the Word of God. People from all over this country, all over this world show up. 500 people show up on the first night. 200, 300 people showed up last year for soul winning. And you get all excited. Whoa, a revival. That's not a revival. I'm not against it. We do it. I'm for it. 
But you, you know, the Christian life, you ought to be excited. You go to the Philippines, you go to Mexico, you go on these mission trips, and it's great. Well, you know what? You just show up. How about you just show up to reach the lost man down the street? Amen. See, a mature Christian enjoys the highs, but is faithful in the lows. Amen. Some people, they try to go from conference to conference, event to event, arrest to arrest, <laughs> protest to protest. Hey, when things slow down, you say, Pastor Ray, what do you do when things slow down? My wife and I, we wake up every morning, whether it's the Sunday after Red Hot Preaching Conference, the Sunday after some major event, the Sunday after some big protest, or if it's just a regular Monday morning, we wake up and open our Bibles and spend time with Jesus. Amen. And you should too. Or you'll die. So we see the candidate for revival. Well, notice there, Philippians 3.10. I didn't finish it. That I may know him. Notice, notice, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. We see the candidate for revival. We see the catalyst for revival. Go back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Look, I'm just here to tell you, 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 you got you to get to the place you got to get to the place where you don't need some sort of external source to keep you excited. You just love Jesus and you're excited. By the way, this is, why one, this is one reason why after the Red Hot Preaching Conference, after some big missions conference in the Philippines, or after some big event, or after some big new IFB conference or whatever, this is one reason why... Two to three weeks right after a conference, anyone that says to me like, oh, I want to go in the ministry, I want to do this, I just say, praise the Lord. But I think to myself like, let's wait six months and see how you feel. Because that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not excitement and excited. It's just you spending time with Jesus and being excited for Jesus. Paul says, in prison, isolated from the big events and the multitudes and the crowds, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul said, I just need Jesus. Sometimes there were crowds, sometimes there was not. Sometimes Paul preaches and thousands of people and a whole city is being turned upside down for God. And sometimes he says, no man stood with me, but the Lord was with me. See, you know what you need? You need to develop a close walk with Jesus. You need to feel his touch. You need to hear his words. You need to let them burn inside of you. And you might experience something that very few Christians ever experience, revival. So we see the candidate for revival, and we see the catalyst for revival. Let me just real quickly give you the characteristics of revival. What does revival look like? Look at verse 15. Keep your place there in Philippians, if you would. I'm not sure if I asked you to do that. Go back to Luke chapter 7. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. You know what's a characteristic of a revived heart? The fact that they begin to speak. <laughs> the, the fact that they begin to talk. I mean, the first thing that we're told here is that he that was dead sat up and began to speak. 
I'm not sure if you kept your place in Philippians, but if you did, if you go right before Philippians, you have Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Say, so what do you mean by that? Here, here's what I mean by that. You, you know what the Bible says? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we can but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You can only talk. You will only talk. See, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You will only talk about the things that you have seen and heard. That's why some of you can only talk about sports. That's why some of you can only talk about the economy. That's why some of you can only talk about politics. Because that's your religion. That's what you spend time on. That's what you allow in here and allow in here. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be up to date with the news, but I'm just telling you, if you fill yourself with the Word of God, you find yourself talking about the Word of God. Amen. Paul said in Ephesians 6, 19, he says, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 4, you're there in Ephesians, go past Philippians into Colossians. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, With all praying also for us, Colossians 4, 3, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make manifest. He says that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul said in another passage, he says, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. You know, here's the characteristic of a revived heart. A characteristic of a revived heart is someone who wants to speak about God and about the things of God. And look, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So if you're not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. Now, who are you following? I don't know. If you're following this world, you're following a dead man. But I'm here to tell you the characteristic of revival is that you'll want to speak. We can only speak the things which we have seen and heard. Look, if you spend time with Jesus every day, get to know Jesus, get to know the Word of God, you're going to want to speak about Jesus. You're going to want to open your mouth boldly and make known the mystery of Christ. See, a testimony of your words is a characteristic of revival, but that's not it. Let me give you another one. We'll finish up. Go back to Luke chapter 7. A testimony of your words is a characteristic of revival, but also a testimony of your life is a characteristic of revival. See, in Luke chapter 7, verse 16, the Bible says, when verse, in verse 15 it says, And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Verse 16, And there came fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the regions round about. Do you know what happens as a result of a revived life? Not only do you stand up and speak, but also others will see you and they will glorify God as a result. Here's how, it's, how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew if you would. We'll, we'll, we'll finish up right here. Matthew 5, look at verse 16. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and, don't miss it, Glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know what a revived life does? It brings glory to God. It says, and there came fear on all, Luke 7, 16, and they glorified God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It says that they said that a great prophet is risen among us. 
Look, a revived life will show a difference. I didn't say a saved life. A saved life doesn't necessarily show a difference. Salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, period. End of story. But if you actually begin to walk with God and live the Christian life, people should notice. Go, go back to Luke chapter 7. Look, here, look, here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm telling you. When you tell your co-workers you're a Christian and they're like, you're a Christian? That's a bad, that's a bad sign. Oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. That, no. Well, you understand, Pastor, I'm trying to be like them to reach them. You're an idiot. Why would they want to come to you if you've got all the same problems they've got? They want to see a difference. They want to see a trend for you, but they'll make fun of me. You know what? They'll make fun of you. They'll call you a Bible thumper. They'll call you a goody two-shoes. They'll, make, they'll say, you're this and you're that. But when they're in trouble, when they need help, when their marriage is falling apart, when they don't know what to do with their children, they'll know who to come to. Amen. See, a revived person will speak about Jesus, but also have the life to back it up. See, we don't believe in lifestyle evangelism, but your lifestyle better match your evangelism. A revived person will speak about Christ, and then they'll also have, and look, we're not perfect, we're all sinners, but you'll live your life in such a way where people will say, there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that gal. I, I love how it's said here. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 16. And there came fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, that a great prophet is risen among us and that God hath visited his people. You know what your family members should say about you? God has visited them. You know what your neighbors should say about you? They're different. God has visited that house. You know what your, your, your close friends and family, when you start coming to church and you start living the Christian life and you start reading the Bible and you start being faithful to church and you start getting yourself under the preaching of the Word of God and uh, uh, studying the Word of God for yourself and developing a life and a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and walking with Jesus and caring about Jesus and loving Jesus, they should say, God has visited His people. What well, to God, that's what they would say about us. That God has visited His people. Verse 17, and this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and through all the regions round about. That's our goal. Our goal is that you would be revived, that I would be revived, that this church would be revived, that our lives would be transformed, and that the message of Jesus would go out from here, out there, into our community. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the story of this dead man. We thank you for the fact that you had compassion over his mother and he resurrected him. But Lord, I pray for some dead Christians that need resurrecting. I pray that you would never allow this church to die. I pray that you would keep us revived. Help us to walk with you. Help us to have a genuine walk with you, Lord. One of my biggest fears in a church like this is that people will conform to a checklist. They'll conform to rules, but never have a heart for the God of those rules. 
pray you never let that be. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.